Just about everybody has heard the basics about obesity. That two-thirds of Americans are at least overweight, and a third of us are obese. It's an obesity epidemic, we're told, that threatens to make our children's life expectancies shorter than our own. And it drives millions of us to try to lose weight. It's for our health, we say. But is it really, or is our bias against anyone carrying around a few extra pounds, ourselves included, strictly cultural, using health science as an excuse? That cultural bias runs deep, and it's been with us for over 100 years, and some of the groups that are most deeply invested in that bias that show the most prejudice are doctors. Harriet Brown is associate professor of magazine journalism at the Newhouse School of Public Communication at Syracuse University. She's also author of the book Body of Truth, How Science, History, and Culture Drive Our Obsession with Weight and What We Can Do About It. We don't make a distinction between fat is unhealthy for you and fat is unattractive. And I think you're right that a lot of the times what we're really saying is, I don't like fat, that's ugly. I'm being told all the time that's unattractive and unsexy and unappealing. So when you separate out, what do we actually know about health and weight? It turns up very different. My colleagues and I, I think we have been involved in some groundbreaking research during the last 15 years or so that has been quite controversial and in many ways has yielded somewhat surprising results to me even as a doctor and in many ways I think has turned conventional wisdom on its head. Dr. Carl Levy is medical director of preventive cardiology at the John Oxner Heart and Vascular Institute in New Orleans and author of the book The Obesity Paradox, When Thinner Means Sicker and Heavier Means Healthier. I am not in any way trying to promote obesity or to any way suggest that normal weight people try to gain weight. But I think our research really has indicated that fat is not always the devil in our patients who come to us with hypertension, coronary disease, heart failure, atrial fibrillation. We've been finding in study after study that the overweight and obese are actually doing better, having better survival, sometimes 30 to 50 percent lower mortality rates than do the patients with the same diseases who are a normal weight. But everybody knows that people who are obese have more high blood pressure, diabetes, and heart attacks true? Well, yes and no. It depends on how obese. But Brown says our fat-phobic culture has distorted the facts to the point that a lot of us think a few extra pounds will make us much more likely to drop dead. That is exactly what we believe and that's exactly what we say to each other and to ourselves. And if you look at the data, if you look at the correlations between BMI, since that's the measure that we use, and mortality or, you know, your risk of dropping dead prematurely, the people who are the least likely to drop dead are actually the people in the category that we would call overweight to mildly obese. So we think of it as a linear equation, right? So like the heavier you are, the higher your risk of dropping dead. Think of it as a U-shaped curve. Your risk of dropping dead, let's say, is highest at either end of the curve. But the bottom of that curve is in the overweight to mildly obese range. There was a major study in January 2013 by Catherine Flegel from the Center of Disease Control of 97 studies, 2.9 million people, quite statistically powered because it had over 270,000 deaths. And in that study, the obese had higher mortality, but that was all because of 
class 2 obesity and class 3 obesity, and that's it's BMI. Class 2 is above 35, and class 3 is sometimes called morbid obesity, although that sounds like a mean term, and so it's probably better to say class 3 or severe obesity. That's above 40 BMI. But the overweight and the mildly obese BMIs in the 30-35 range did not have higher mortality. In fact, the mildly obese had a 5% lower mortality that wasn't quite statistically significant, but the best survival was in the overweight BMI between 25 and 30, and they actually had 6% better survival than did the normal BMI patients. But then BMI itself is an issue as well. Medicine has used BMI for only a few decades to measure ourselves against the ideal, and Brown says it's used at all only because it's easy, not because it's necessarily accurate. It was never intended to be a way to characterize anybody's health. It was developed by a Belgian mathematician in 1832 as a way of talking about populations in a sort of broad scale. And he specifically said this shouldn't be used to talk about individual people's health. And yet that's what we do. What's more, to say even that there are far more obese people than there used to be ignores the fact that BMI has had a changing definition. We used to have different categories on that BMI chart. So before 1998, you were considered overweight if your BMI was over like 27 point something if you were a woman. And there was no category for obesity. And then in 1998, those categories all changed. And so part of what we're talking about when we talk about the obesity epidemic and the huge rise in obesity in this country is the fact that the categories shifted downward. And so overnight, a lot of people suddenly were classified overweight or obese who never had been before. So it's so interesting. We have this like drumbeat of rhetoric around this. The obesity epidemic, it's killing us. It's killing our children. Our children aren't going to live as long as we do. And so much of it is simply not based on reality. But if that's true, where did the idea come from that the obesity epidemic threatens the health of, well, just about everyone? What doctors tell us is supposed to be based on impartial studies. But Brown says not when $61 billion is at stake. And that's the money spent on the weight loss industry last year. One of the things I learned researching this book was all of the ways that private industry can influence research. Everything from buying doctors' prescribing habits to subtly influencing them to suppressing research that doesn't exactly find what they want it to find. So there's a lot of money at stake in people who want to market weight loss, and it's a sort of built-in clientele because... 97% of people who lose weight regain it, so you've kind of got this built-in customer base. Brown says 130 years ago it wouldn't have been that way. American culture admired overweight people. It was even something to be aspired to. Plumpness was considered a status symbol because if you had enough money, if you had enough to eat that you could get plump, then that meant you had a certain amount of money. And so in our culture, I think part of what happened is as we went through the Industrial Revolution, as food became more accessible, as more and more people had enough to eat and so weren't necessarily facing starvation a lot of the time, then suddenly there wasn't so much status associated with plumpness. Then all of a sudden, oh, the thing that was actually harder to do was be thin. And so that acquired the higher status. That's bolstered by societal power dynamics. Brown has noticed when the culture pushes hardest for women to be thin. They coincide with periods of time when women were gaining more power in the culture. So like right around 1910 to 1920 with the flappers, 
If you think about what was happening then, the suffragettes were pushing for a woman's right to vote, which, of course, we won in 1920. Twiggy came about in, you know, the early 60s. What was happening then? The women's liberation movement and the invention of the birth control pill, which made women feel more sexually free. And what's happening now in our culture? At this moment, women are half the workforce, still aren't paid as much as men, but we've definitely knocking on those glass ceilings more and more. And I think it's really, really interesting that the ideals, you know, what you're supposed to look like as a woman, they've never been more punishingly rigid and thin. Today, nearly 50 years after Twiggy, the cultural pressure to be thin is everywhere, unrelenting and often cruel. Brown says our ideal of body size is so warped that her daughter was heaped with praise of beauty when she suffered from anorexia. Literally, strangers would walk up to us on the street and praise her when she looked like a concentration camp victim, when she was, to my eye, certainly like scarily gaunt and clearly did not look well. And as she recovered and gained weight and became healthy in every sense of the word, People just stopped doing that. No one came up to her. No one praised her. I mean, it's mind-boggling. Brown says she's gotten a considerable amount of pushback from people who seem to resent claims that obesity is anything less than a reflection of personal responsibility. Brown says she has a friend, a sociologist, who's written on obesity and culture. She would get comments from people saying, you're just a fat slob. You just want to rationalize your own laziness. It's kind of amazing the level of hate and vitriol this brings out. No matter how reasonably you try to talk to people about it, no matter how you try to look at the research, the evidence, gather information, people go ballistic over this topic. But why? Why is it so threatening? There's a huge issue around the idea of thin privilege. You know, in other words, if I'm a thin person and I'm used to feeling good about myself, I feel healthy, I feel attractive. Let's say I work at that. Let's say I deprive myself. You know, I diet all the time, as a lot of women do. I go to the gym for an hour a day, even when I don't feel like it, even when I don't enjoy it. You know, there's things I just do because I feel that I'm working hard. And then someone comes along and says, well, you know, it's okay if you don't do that, and it's okay you can be considered attractive and healthy. You don't have to be a size two. Well, suddenly that's very threatening. Where does that leave me, the person with all this thin privilege? It leaves me wondering if I've spent a lot of time and energy for nothing, really. And so we know that people who experience some kind of privilege will defend it to the death. Brown also believes there's something uniquely American about our obsession with weight. In this country, we also have sort of rigid ideas of right and wrong, you know, good and bad, and they've gotten overlaid onto all these body and food issues. So, like, we talk about being good when we're only eating salad without dressing and being bad if you're eating a piece of cake. And that sense of moral virtue and moral transgression, I also think, is we're deeply wedded to it for some reason. We It's black and white, and we sort of like that, even though the world is very gray. Brown says she's not very hopeful that American culture will turn around anytime soon. But she says the process has to start somewhere. If we can't change others, we have to change how we think of ourselves. The first thing is we have to just understand the facts. We have to sort of peek behind the curtain of all of these half-truths that we're fed all the time. And we have to educate ourselves, right? So we have to understand, for example, that being fat is not necessarily bad for you at all, that health and weight 
are not the same thing, you know, that you can be healthy and fat, unhealthy and thin, and everything in between. So sort of the cognitive knowledge, we have to educate ourselves, and we have to also understand that like 97% of people who diet regain the weight and then some, so that if we try to lose weight and we regain it, we're not stuck feeling like this is your personal failure. No, it means that you're a human being <laughs> and that you're like 97% of the rest of the human race. You can find out more about Harriet Brown's book, Body of Truth, on her website, harrietbrown.com. You can find more about Dr. Carl Levy's book at obesityparadox.com. You can always find our shows in our archives at radiohealthjournal.net or on Stitcher and iTunes. I'm Reed Pence. As Americans, we love to snack. In fact, according to a recent report by Mintel, 94% of Americans snack each day. While two-thirds of us admit to snacking to satisfy a craving, one-third are trying to snack on healthier foods. Some foods can meet both needs. Registered dietitian Courtney Romano is a health advisor for the California Table Grape Commission. Fresh grapes are a perfect snack because not only do they taste great, they're healthy too. A bonus is the grapes are ripe and ready to eat when you buy them. And they're a packable snack that you can bring with you when you're out and about. Grapes from California are also a natural source of antioxidants and other polyphenols and may contribute to heart health. With just 90 calories for a three-quarter cup serving, no fat or cholesterol, and virtually no sodium, fresh grapes are a smart choice. For more information, visit grapesfromcalifornia.com. Accidental falls are a leading cause of injury and death in older Americans. In fact, one in three people age 65 and older will take a fall at some point that diminishes their quality of life. Falls can happen for a variety of reasons. But Dr. Katie Davenport, a practicing emergency physician and member of the American College of Emergency Physicians, explains how to reduce your risk. Emergency physicians have outlined seven simple steps to avoid falls in a new video. Here are a few of them. First, improve strength and balance with exercise, like Tai Chi. Check your home for hazards that could cause you to trip, like loose rugs. Make sure you wear supportive footwear, and if your medications make you feel lightheaded or dizzy, ask your doctor or pharmacist about alternatives. For more tips, visit www.emergencycareforyou.org. The seven-step fall challenge video outlines common steps you can take right now to greatly reduce your risk of falling. Just go to emergencycareforyou.org to view it and find more information. That's emergencycareforyou.org.